Welcome back to the Sin Arrivals podcast. I'm Brett. And I'm Brent. And this week, we got a great conversation for you. We're going to take you to the TV corner and give you some updates on all the episodes of TV we've been watching. And then we're going to have a nice, good conversation about our favorite directors. Top three, couple honorable mentions, but we're going to go deep into why we love our favorite directors, our favorite films from those directors, and cap this conversation off with a little competition between us and a couple of our friends. But to start us off, TV Corner, The Book of Boba Fett, or should I say Mandalorian season two and a half, because Boba Fett was nowhere to be found in this entire episode. That, that's the joke that I've been waiting to hear all week after I've seen that episode. It it certainly was that. It was just, it was a Mandalorian, Mandalorian episode. We both are juggling that word right now. I know. Well, it's a made up word. Let's be, let's be honest. <laughs> it's real. Uh, but yeah, Bryce Dallas Howard came in, directed two episodes of Mandalorian before, and this is probably her best one out of the three. She keeps getting better with every single uh, time she gets to, uh, get it sir to dip her toes in this nice star wars world i mean she did a fantastic job they're like specifically directing style there's like a one shot of him limping through this cool new city and it's like it's literally a one take shot i'd like to um watch the whatever they put the disney plus documentaries out i'd like to watch the behind the scenes of this episode specifically to see if it was a truly a one shot or if they were able to sneak some cuts in there or whatever but that was great Seeing a brand new world was great because honestly, I was getting sick of the sand of tattooing. Finally, good to be like off world and somewhere else that feels super unique and super Star Wars. Well, the one thing with that I that I know personally I enjoy with the Mandalorian series is just there's like he has his own atmosphere and then Boba Fett has his. And for some reason, like I can gel with what we have on the Mando. And you've heard my frustration with what we have with Book of Boba Fett. Like there's just there's something missing with Boba Fett, and I know that I get it with Mando. I mean, and it's kind of hard. It's, it's kind of crazy to say because they're both nearly the same kind of characters in terms of, like, the structure and whatnot. Sure. But, but I mean, I just, I find myself more entertained with Mandalorian. And so when I heard that this is what this episode was about, very excited to see it. And obviously, um, with his uh, blade, I once again. The dark saber. The dark saber. It was kind of cool because we haven't seen that since he claimed it. Um, right. We finally get to see him like actually. Well, he fought with it in the at the, the end of the season, too. But we get to see him like wielding it and using it to hunt his bounties and whatnot to like go off of the point you just made. I think it's the moments like that where he's like just cleaving down an entire mob of thugs whatever in a in a meat locker that's the kind of stuff i wanted to see from boba fett being this like new mob boss is just like taking down and killing without remorse and whatnot and not questioning anything that's not what that's not the story they're they're telling a story about how boba fett has changed in a way and i understand that but that's i think why we love mando as much as we do and why some people are not as on board with the whole Boba Fett show. I don't know what those species are called that he goes in and basically kills I, those. Dude, honestly, yeah, I don't know either. But they look... Maybe Clatonians or something? I don't it, know. Well, they remind me, they kind of like the way the, the makeup is and whatnot. It looks like the, cre the creep from Jeepers Creepers. I don't know sure. If, I don't know if you haven't seen it. 
Um, I know what you're talking about, but sure, yeah. They just kind of they kind of look like that, and uh, and yeah, I mean, it was a really cool opening scene. I mean, certainly we haven't had anything if, that engaging with a Boba Fett episode. I mean, and it's a direct, it's like literally a direct nod to the pilot episode or the first episode of The Mandalorian when he's in the, that he's at that cold planet and he goes to the bar and he's literally like, I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold, bro. He says that in both episodes. And so they're like, they're just basically like, hey, Mando's back, baby. It's it's like that, it's, you know, back in the Westerns days, you know, we were coming in either dead or alive and. Here, here, this is what their lingo is there. And I, I really enjoy that. And then, so, yeah, I mean, I thought my, the, I thought the Mandalorian show was our Western Star Wars, and I thought Boba was going to be our crime mafia Star Wars. And one kind of handles their genre better than the other, basically. That is very certainly true. I can't go across that one. Um, one of the things that I liked with the episode, though, is when he goes and visits the armorer and mm-hmm. there's that, that dual scene like that one certainly caught my attention dude there's there's so much lore in that that probably went right over your head because just i mean in that scene alone we're seeing the style of training that we've already seen in the rebel series with sabine wren and kanan they're doing the same thing where it's like they're talking about how the blade's getting heavier and you have to fight with the blade and not against the blade or else it's going to keep feeling heavier like that uh the fact that we get the character, like the heavy gunner character who is actually Paz Vizla, the son of Pre Vizla, who is a character who in the Clone Wars wielded the dark saber, and their ancestor Tar Vizla was the original forger of the dark saber because he was a Mandalorian Jedi and he's the one who made the dark saber. So like the, 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 the fight between the two of them makes sense. Because he's like, that's my ancestral family blade. I I'm one. I need to fight you for it. I need to try to stake claim to it. And fun fact: John Favreau voices Paz Vizla in this show, and he voiced Pre Vizla in the Clone Wars. So he's father and son, which I I always love. I, I was wondering because I saw that uh, on the internet, maybe database. So I'm gonna have to like retract to remember the character. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, great scene between them. He basically gets like, they literally call him up in apostate. They like kick him out of his religion because he t- took his helmet off twice or whatever. Yeah. That's such an interesting part of the lore. Um, it's I mean, yeah. that I can't put my head around. I like it because they, they showed in season two that like, that's only certain sects of Mandalorian. Like it's, it's like Baptists versus Lutherans versus Catholics, whatever. They're all just like, based off the same sort of religion but they have a different sets of rules like uh, some mandalorians are cool with you taking off your helmet like um oh my god why am i blanking Uh, uh, bo katan i'm gonna cut all that out yeah bo katan like she doesn't care about taking her helmet never has never did but and they reference that in the show Actually, I think they referenced that specifically in Bryce Dallas Howard's episode of season two of The Mandalorian, which is awesome. But this is all the stuff we got with the Mandalorian armor and Paz Vizsla and, and Mando and whatnot. It's all just great setup for I'm pretty sure what we're going to get in season three of Mandalorian is him trying to redeem himself for Mandalore and hunt down whatever those waters of Mandalore in the mines that they were teasing or they were talking about at the end of their conversation. But yeah, 
I mean, that stuff's all great. This whole episode, easily the best of the series, which is really sad. I'm like, they're, they were worse off not having Boba in this episode just because they leave in, leave us open to complaining about the fact that Boba wasn't in the episode. If he was barely in it, less people would be saying that as like, oh, Din Djarin had to come and save the show for Boba Fett. I, mean, I, don't, I don't necessarily say that. I would not agree with that statement at all. I think in a sense of the Mandalorian as a whole, I feel like these are all, they're all a connective series, almost like the MCU. So like, yeah, the book of Boba Fett is just an offshoot of the same story. We're just seeing it finally cross back over. So it really does make sense in my mind. Well, the thing that's happening, the Mandalorian kind of insert himself within the book of Boba Fett and like the chapter that is with the show and um, the plot that they're kind of figuring out. It's not him coming in to save it, from the story standpoint, he's more so just kind of coming in and saving it for like a ratings standpoint. Like there have obviously been rumors that the show wasn't getting the, the traction that they wanted. And so it kind of comes at a really good time with having two episodes left. It really ups the ante and having like more people be interested in what's to come to say the least. Like, I don't think he saved the show in terms of like how the story is going to play out, but he certainly is helping out with, getting the people's attention like well maybe we should be watching the show and paying attention even more to what's going on behind the story or whatever my thing though is just like if you had boba fett at some point of that episode you wouldn't you couldn't make the point of like oh this is just a mandalorian episode and i it was fine it was a great episode but like there were parts of the episode that i think you could have cut out for interactions with boba towards the end with like Fennec we didn't see the ship was great seeing the Naboo starfighter that was freaking awesome and his new ship is oh, so yeah. cool seeing him whiz past the the uh the wreckage of uh, of the beggars canyon from the pod race that, that was all awesome but it lasted a long time we didn't need to see them build that ship for that long like there were some great references the rod that he had the Jawas go get him is a reference to the original Star Wars that's the they in the first Star Wars movie, Han Solo tries to use that exact same prop to like stop the trash compactor walls from crushing them. And now we finally see it being used for its intended purpose in a starship. That's the stuff that I think Dave Filoni and John Favreau are so good is taking those like little bits of old Star Wars lore and revitalizing them and injecting them into their shows. It's all these little details, man. It's so cool. But how many people know that? <laughs> I dude, get on get on fucking Star Wars TikTok, bro. No, just no. Maybe Reddit. <laughs> I saw the one you sent me, and I'm like, I this is too much. It's a lot. There's so much, but yeah, I mean, you see him. I like that he has to take public transit before he has to. Uh, he's got his ship, and uh, you you see that droid that he's giving his weapons to is. That's an RX droid, which is a reference to Disneyland because the RX droid is who piloted Star the Star Tour ship. So there's references everywhere, bro. They're all over the freaking place. I love it so much. Wow. Originally, the character originally voiced by Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman himself. He was the pilot of the Star Tours Star Cruiser when and like literally it was like the public transit of the space world. So it works perfectly. I'm happy for you. Deep cuts, bro. I mean, so I yeah, I love the episode. Can't wait to see. I mean, dude, like 
after that episode ended, just the thought of Boba Fett going into like a situation where there might be violence involved with Fennec Shan next to him and then him being backed up by Din Djarin and fucking Black Chrysanthemum, that's, that is a squad I do not want to mess with by any means. No. Yeah. And like that kind of Star Wars imagery is exactly what I'd want from this show. So I can't, yeah, like you said, I can't wait to see what's coming next. The as much as I don't like that Boba wasn't in it, the man this Mandalorian episode literally just like revitalized me because it has been a little bit wishy-washy with the with the show lately. But yeah, could not be more excited to see what comes next. Do we know Boba Fed series? Do we know when we're getting Mandalorian season three? Uh, it was going to be in December, but I think they pushed it for some reason. Dang, because all yeah. these Marvel shows now? Potentially. Okay. Maybe because of Obi-Wan, because I know that's, they don't want to triple up. Because yeah. that one's shooting for May 4th for a release date. Wonder why. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much it. Pedro Pascal can do no wrong. Everyone freaking loves Din Djarin. I mean, dude, can't wait till he's and I and dude, if they if they actually decide to show us him going off to see his little friend, great, that'd be awesome. Uh, but I think they could save that, and that can be the very beginning of season three of the Mandalorian, and then we just see him coming back to Tatooine on his star on his brand new starship, and just being like, "All right, I'm taking care of that. What do we need to do?" If they did that, I'd be totally satisfied. But yeah. Season three, right off the bat, Luke Skywalker, Grogu, that would be sick. Sebastian Stan, Luke Skywalker? No, that's not going to, it's going to be, dude, they, they, after that episode of The Mandalorian came out, some guy on YouTube went and like did a better job at deep faking Luke Skywalker's face. So Disney went out and hired that guy from YouTube to do the deep fakes. He's been doing the deep fakes for the young uh, Boba Fett for the, when it's the kid version during the prequels. So I'm pretty sure they're just going to use the, oh, another, uh, something I caught from TikTok. Thank you, TikTok, Star Wars TikTok. Uh, we're talking about the, the body double for Luke Skywalker. He's literally in this episode of the Boca of Boba Fett. He is one of the X-Wing fighters. Is Mark Hamill's stunt double from the episode of Mandalorian season two that they put the face over is literally the young, x-wing pilot in that episode with the other x-wing pilot who we saw in the season two of mandalorian and whatnot who recognizes mando it's going to become required viewing now after the episode to go on a tiktok yeah star wars tiktok dude all the easter eggs it's amazing how deep dude they put so much detail into these episodes bro and like to fully appreciate it you got to be in the know and that's why i'm here folks i'm here to keep you in the know i'm dropping these easter eggs for you folks out there all for you well, how about the Easter eggs and Peacemaker? Is there any? Yeah, there were a ton, dude. He rattled off so many freaking funny names in that one scene where he's like, you could have put any of these people in jail instead of my dad. I was crying laughing at that. Yeah, I thought that, um, like, I saw that in the, the week, like, the preview episode for the following week. So when I was asking you that that was one of the scenes I liked, you were looking at me like, I didn't see that. They advertised that one in the preview for next week's episode. I mean, so I had like, a little Mario glimpse at it. Drake, Joe Montana, Joe Montana, which is like, I, I'm pretty sure that's a Waterboy reference, which yes. is amazing. 
I want to say Ryan Reynolds like kind of gave a shout out. I saw re- uh, the other night on, or I think last night on Twitter about like being referenced in that. Um, yeah, that I mean, was, he was, said, was dude. He referenced Brad Pitt. He referenced. He was like Michael Jordan, Michael B. Jordan, BTS, Eugene Levy. <laughs> well, he and he improvised that entire scene, which was that's once amazing. Again, the credit to John Cena. You go. Dude, he, he's really good. And he's like, he just ripped into Riverdale. Uh, I don't want to repeat what he said because last time I was editing the podcast, I realized how much I say the F word. And so I'm trying to be better for you folks. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to say what he says. But yeah, I mean, the references, he's like Ozzy Osbourne, Sharon Osbourne, Bill Cosby, Amy Winehouse. And then he's like, Amy Winehouse is dead. So funny. Yeah, that was part of, that was a good part of the, um, the episode, obviously. I mean, the episode focused a lot on the relationship between Peacemaker and John Akatamos, which I thought was pretty funny, but like... Well, I mean, he kept bullying him, and so they had right. to kind of give it they a little bit give him a light. moment. <clears throat> and what a moment they gave him, dude. He gets... The, like, the thing that turns it around is when Akatamos is able to chainsaw through a gorilla that has a butterfly in its brain. Like, that's where this show is taking us. That I love... Dude, jo- James Gunn does not hold back. Period. He even makes jokes about Superman having a poop fetish. He, yeah. Uh-huh. Hilarious. There is nothing that's safe. I really thought they were teasing Gorilla Grodd whenever they were like, oh, there was an escaped gorilla, blah, blah, blah. And that's obviously not where we went with this. It was just a gorilla. But I still love It was the whole... just a gorilla. Yeah, I know. Right? It was a mind-controlled gorilla. But yeah, it was still hilarious how we got to that point. And it seems like the perfect weird villain for this team. I love the reference to invasion of the body snatchers when they, there was the scene where he like realized there, these guys weren't aliens. And it was like the scream and point. One of the workers at the warehouse where they're killing, where he's wearing the x-ray helmet and he's just shooting people. They do like a scream and point sort of thing, like from invasion my, of the body snatchers. My favorite part of that was when they went in there and the partner was like, Amanda Waller's daughter cannot remember her name. Leota. Uh, yeah, she. Bio. She was just like, uh, she's getting ready to like talk to the lady at the front desk, and then John Cena comes in and blows her head off, and she was like, "I was waiting for the cue," and he's like, "Blowing her head off was the fucking cue," and I just yeah, how do you, yeah, I was about to say, how do you not know that? Like, that that's, part that's the cue was my uh, that one had me almost in tears just because I was not expecting it to be so just blunt. Yeah, <laughs> John Cena was. It, that, that whole scene though was really was really neat and especially like the the x-ray vision seeing the butterflies a lot of dude that was a lot of great action i mean james gunn is uh, writes a hell of a script but then he's also so great at directing action well also that gorilla looked pretty darn real yeah i mean it was very decent cgi i mean obviously uh, it was it was obviously cgi I've, but it was it, looked, the, it was very well done especially for like a series i saw the gorilla what gorilla grood i don't Grod, yeah. Really Grod, okay, cool. I saw him on the Flash when they had him on there, and that looked right. horrible, dude. I mean, but that's CW Flash budget. I but get, yeah. it. I get it, but still, it was kind of like, um, yeah, that whole part was really neat, and especially with Vigilante getting pretty upset that he didn't get to kill him, uh, kill the gorilla with the chainsaw, and after foreshadowing, yeah. yeah. I bet you, I bet you that's a setup for like some kind of jealousy arc between Vigilante and John Economos and like Peacemaker or something. 
I don't know. I don't know. That's the thing. The, the, the show kind of meanders a little bit, which I don't like hate, but like, it feels like a lot of these, we get a lot of scenes of just like talking and whatnot between these characters that are like, mur- uh, whenever they're not just sitting and talking, they're literally murdering people. So well, they also- highs and lows, I guess, but it's a weirdly, it's a weirdly tonal show. Well, they're starting to show them that they have more in common in a way, especially with the episode kind of going in that music direction of like seeing what their taste is with one another and then find out they all kind of like the same stuff. It's kind of funny. Right. Or at least in the charming in a way, because then it kind of takes away from like the bad stuff. Cause that was the thing when the movie came out, you know, Peacemaker was advertised as like, I'm gonna get the job done. I don't care who I have to kill to get in the way. And now they're kind of they're not retracting back in a negative way. They're kind of doing it, I would say nicely. Yeah, sure. No, definitely. The heart of the show is the relationship between this team and the reveal at the end and the cliffhanger we're left on was also really, really well done. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because now I I don't like, how are we going to start off the next episode? Uh, So that's going to be really cool. It's, is that, I mean, yeah, it's definitely, it's, I'd say the last couple of episodes, just after watching the first three, all back to back to back, the uh, episodes four and five have just feel like they've had their like high, like I said, their high moments and their low moments. And there are moments of more mellow, just conversation and establishing more of the lore. But I, I, I can't complain about the product that we're getting at the end of the day, because like some, this is some of the craziest television I've ever seen. And literally John Cena is cracking my ass up constantly in this show. Well, yeah. And for, I mean, a character and the nature that Peacemaker is, um, right. But James Gunn has created in such a limited, I could say structure. It's still not horrible. I mean, there's some superhero, those superhero, superhero shows on CW, they have, you know, their range is ridiculous and they put in so much stuff in there and it kind of gets loose, at least with this one so far, it's very bottled. And I think I like that most about it because, you know, they do mention other heroes in this world and all that, but at the same time, you can still focus on what is within the peacemaker realm. And I like that a lot. I caught a little reference to, uh, if you, on his wall, it says that he cap peacemaker captures kite man. And that was like the first time he ever did something hero, but that also confirms kite man in the universe, the way James Gunn has been like inserting these, like these incredibly niche characters into the like DC world that they have established. It's super satisfying. I'm, I need to figure out how they're going to end this show. Cause now they've done like the big reveal of the, the, the butterfly that's infiltrated the team or whatnot. And so where do we go from here? The one part that I kind of enjoy with the show is that they bring an actor on and he's the guy that plays, he is, they killed the sheriff inside the police station, like right before they were going to like, like not a, release Peacemaker's dad. They were about to let him go, but then they kind of went, um, they changed the sheriff that was going to allow that to happen. Oh, sure. The cat, they basically, yeah, they took out, they, they had the captain switched out. Uh, well, Mern did basically Mern had the captain switched out so that, Peacemaker's dad would have to stay in jail, even though the fingerprints obviously didn't match. Yeah. And then one yes. thing that I really like is the um, the actor that is playing that sheriff. His name is Christopher Hatterdahl. And he was a character that was pretty 
sinister and supernatural. So I'm like, you kind of know that if, if he plays a character like that before he might, there's another actress. Oh, he's for sure a butterfly. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, there's an actress that's in uh, Book of Boba Fett who also played in Supernatural. She was a character. I mean, that show went on for 15 years, so it's bound to have people. Is it the girl from the biker gang? Mm-mm, it's Armor, the actress that plays Armor. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you know I'm gonna I'm always going to have that with me. But knowing, knowing that like he's played a character this industry before, I'm kind of like, I obviously you don't trust him, but there's not that there's more that he's hiding, but um, you got to pay attention i guess to what what's coming next with it definitely but yeah i'm very excited to see what's the next episode i mean it's good there these are two good really good tv shows i'm watching bro there's two that you're watching and then there's one that you're not watching that's really good right (laughs) the that's right that's not really good i knew it uh for the third week in a row all right euphoria is hitting the the charts in terms of like the chatter on Twitter, which I know it's not like a very mainstream thing that you can use as in terms of like uh, the, like the viewership, like those, the viewers numbers is what people obviously uh, account for in a way. But, but yeah, I mean, euphoria, once again, you kind of not to get too deep into it. I think what I want to start doing going forward is just like highlighting the areas that I like the most about the show. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again, you know, it, uh, repeating myself on the nature about how it is a group of these teenagers and this the the unbeaten just what I want to say they don't hate one another but they don't know that they're hurting one another and I think that that is a very interesting part within this season uh, and how it's going to unfold because it seems like they're condensing the characters uh, I've actually had some conversation with it with some people that watch the show and it seems like we're only focusing on a couple characters more than while we were last season and especially just how the first episode started off with and so like some of the things that i enjoyed with this episode you have there's a in the beginning that opens up with jules backstory real quick and they do a really quick like 30 second love story montage of scenes that involve like pop culture in a way they do a little riff with Titanic and Rue plays Jack and Jules plays Rose. There is a, another one with Brokeback Mountain where they both play the characters with Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. They do uh, the John Lennon and Yoko Uno photo together. Like they recreate that photo. They recreate the ghost scene. If you've seen ghosts, you know the scene that I'm talking about. And like, that was a really cool and a couple more, but I don't want to really like spoil all of them, but I thought that was really neat. And it really kind of puts an image of how their relationship is with one another. Just that, you know, they love each other. It's so strong, but at the same time, it's disaster just waiting to happen. Another part that I really liked about the episode was was Cal. Um, certainly weren't going to expect that from the episode we got last week where we had his backstory and got to learn more about how he's just a very angry individual. But at the same time, like he's really keeping in his, the fact that he's gay and what he does in this episode is, you know, he goes out and he gets really intoxicated, gets kicked out of that gay bar that I went to with Derek and he goes home. And what he does is he just makes a grand entrance. He pees on his floor and he makes a grand exit. He basically makes a scene. His wife comes down and his two sons 
and and I made a, an, an incorrect notice a couple of weeks ago, but like the firstborn was the older brother that we kind of really don't know much about. But what Kyle does is he just kind of really riffs on the fact and lets them all know that like he's gay and he wants to be able to be himself. Like he he said it like he's an emotional man and he wants to be able to do that and he can't do it with his household and that everyone inside it is holding him back and he just really i mean it's not a scene for the pleasant hearted i mean he's destroying the family and one part of that the whole scene that's just uh really mysterious in a way is that he grabs a picture frame and as he's like you see in the picture frame that there are three children and you only know about two so it really makes you want to question like who's this third mysterious child that we don't know about so that part is interesting to see what they come forward with. And it, I, I mean, I wouldn't be as upset if like this might be the last we see of Cal for a while because they have given him a lot of focus in this last two episodes. And then to kind of really close out on it, uh, a quick shout out to Sydney Sweeney. What she did in this episode is unreal. Like it's one of those where you don't want to spoil too much of it just because of like how she's able to elevate the performance from screen screenplay screenplay to screen but she does a fantastic job acting drunk uh, during the birthday party and Nate coming over there and just that chaos the show rides on with that and then also with the tension but the last shot that you kind of see with her is a uh, there's a bunch of flowers around surrounded around her and it's just like quick image and she's just kind of like kind of soaking in in this moment of just beauty and disaster chaos but it also kind of is, uh, is like a reminder of that shot from Midsummer, of Florence Pugh, where she's in this bouquet of flowers and she just realizes that she's happy in this moment. And I think that might be what they're symbolizing as well with Sydney's character, Casey, that they also showed in the beginning of the episode with Jules and Rue, just like how these people reflect themselves to what we're used to already in pop culture and getting that now. And so I think once again, Euphoria, Euphoria is on the trajectory for something that I don't think I'll see that someone might not come out alive on that this show has not really killed anyone off yet but they might they might get close to something like that uh to speak on something that I can actually talk about because I've seen it uh with Midsummer, I did I don't know that I took away that she was happy with the situation from Midsummer uh, at the end I think she just like oh, 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 fell yeah. into like fell into have that the conversation? ties of it all. You want to have that conversation? I mean, we have a Midsummer. lot of podcasts. Midsummer, dude, she she is found herself surrounded by people that are accepting her for who she is and understand like what she wants within a relationship and that she wasn't getting that from her boyfriend and that they're able to kind of move her into like. I shouldn't say like the light, but no, I think I think it's pure cult hypnotization. Nah, bro. She 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 is in a moment. She got absorbed into the idealisticness of this like whatever cult, and she is around. It finally like it basically enveloped her in that moment, and yeah, she was smiling, but that's because it finally washed her brain. No, not no. They want to the part in the movie where she's crying and they're all crying with her. Like she's been able. That's to the brain. That's like her. She's being, being able, able to, to share emotions with other people. Um, we we do have a friend that knows some cult stuff. We could have him on the pod. Ah, <laughs> <do it>. uh, yes. 
we'll have to call the expert next time we're gonna have to really get in deep with it because i I can show you some stuff like she has accepted she allowed them to burn her freaking boyfriend or whatever like she was completely you know not withholding from because of the brainwashing though that's the thing he was not brainwashed when he was effing that that game bane or whatever it was yes he was he, he had drank the period blood and be got and gotten hypnotized by it. This, I'm sorry, does period blood do that to you? I wouldn't know. Actually. Okay, good, good answer, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, unfortunately. But yeah, great, great conversation about a show I don't watch. Hey, we're waiting for you. All right, with arms wide open, Re- waiting and willing. But Brent, before we get into our theme, the fans have been asking calling demanding to know what we think about the 355 oh yes that movie uh a movie a movie i did not see (laughs) i have no idea (laughs) because there hasn't been movie movies in the year 2022 you know, I watched a hundred of the new releases last year. I think I'm going to be a little more selective this year. You have told me that, and I think that's more brave than actually watching a lot of movies because you're kind True. of you could be missing out on something. I said that, and I totally consider I'm considering watching the like Kevin James Sean Payton movie on Netflix. <laughs> I'm gonna. I think I am very much gonna. We had the. One thing that's interesting to point out with the 355 is that it, well, for starters, you have the director that did the Dark Phoenix, and I think we all know. Oh, that was <laughs> Simon Kimberg? Yes. Uh, so we know how to start nice. off with that. We, we know how that He's is. He's a good writer, but Jesus. But yeah, I mean, this, I mean, the movie was supposed to come out at the start of last year, but got, got delayed back like a full, I remember, I remember um, like December of 2020. It got, they're like, it comes out in January, but we're going to move it back a whole year. Like, that was one of the things that I thought yeah. was interesting, was they pushed it a whole year. So it's, I mean, it has a all-female cast, and of, and it's an action bonanza that you would kind of find on a Saturday morning on USA uh, that you know your, your dad or your grandfather will sit down and watch. It's not like the Liam Neeson-led action movies that come out in January. Uh, this one actually has, like, talented actresses and they're they have they're not familiar in terms of like this genre of just action but it's you I mean it's a generic cia mission and whatnot trying to retrieve the, the i mean i'm not going to say it's a MacGuffin because there's there's more to it and whatnot but i mean it kind of is in a way um it's i mean if you're looking to kind of get out there and watch something it's not horrible i know you have those deals where cinemas have discounted tickets on certain days of the week do it then those unnamed theater chains do it then i mean especially if you're ever if you're ever uncertain about stuff i know what i do is like i have a a special i should say special membership like i'm not no vip member but i pay 20 dollars a month with regal and i can see as many movies as i want once a day and it benefits me having to like see a movie like the 355 like next week we have or no, shoot, this week, we finally can go back into theaters because we have something out. But like, I'm excited to see the Moonfall because we haven't had something in a while. And so 
I should say I'm, I'm very much more excited for Jackass forever than I am for Moonfall. But I, I, I will say, I think 355, the thing I got the most out of it is, uh, I mean, obviously you, you can't miss out on Jessica Chastain, even though she hasn't been a pure winner. There's still some great things, at least seeing her in an action film. But Diane Kruger is like my favorite part of this movie. And that would be the, oh you the tall blonde woman is your favorite in this movie what a surprise the tall, she goes, tall german blonde but sure you know you know you're ready for this she is i'm not i don't believe they're married but she is with norman reedus daryl from the walking dead oh, and i sure. believe they have two kids together so happily married i don't believe that but happily together um, I mean, I could literally just answer that question right here because I have the pay. They're okay. Oh, yeah, they're People just happy to know. Happily together, but yeah, uh, that's the three three five five. I mean, take it with a grain of salt. With a grain of salt. But now I guess we can move on to our theme of the week. Um, we just got done talking directors quite a bit with our friends, so we decided that should be our theme for this week. So it's another week of us not picking just a single movie to talk on and like going up against each other. We're going to go ahead, talk about our top three favorite directors of all time. Uh, Both of our lists, obviously it's another list episode. So we'll go back and forth. Uh, And after we do our third and second picks, maybe we throw in some honorable mentions before we get our, to our number ones. But honestly, if you listen to this podcast at all before, you're probably going to be able to guess which each of our number ones are. So getting into it, Brent, what would be your number three favorite director of all time? So this, so this gentleman uh, worked at a video rental store and he worked his way up into having a film premiere in Sundance that is turning 30 years old this year. And that makes me feel ridiculous because that's when I was born. But I, number three, Quentin Tarantino. Oh, what a surprise. Is he your number three? He is my number three. So yeah. we can talk on this subject together. You see that? That's the door. Get out. Well, no, that's the wrong director, dude. That's Jordan Peele. That's but, in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Actually, he also worked at like a porn theater, didn't he? I believe there. Were, I heard something like yeah, that. I'm pretty sure that's accurate. I don't have but a, yeah, man, he's a filmmaker. He's a film lover's filmmaker, dude. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, every everyone, I can't say everyone can attach to like his work. I mean, because some of his stuff is pretty brutal, but he, I mean, he makes great films and his the characters that he puts in those films. And it's not just, I would say the directing that makes him so great, but also just the way he's able to write a screenplay. It's dude, it, his, the, the way he can handle dialogue is mm-hmm. unlike it's unlike anyone else. The like conversation, just regular conversation in his movies, like Pulp Fiction, like the conversation about a royale with cheese. That's just two dudes talking in a car in a movie that has a gimp and pegging. And it's more, one of the most iconic parts of the entire movie is just these like lines of dialogue sprinkled in through his movies. And you're right. Like as a director, dude, his style is so poignant. So always in the forefront, but it's really his dialogue and his screenplays and the way he can write just human conversation 
that uh, keeps him at the top of the top of the lists. And the one thing that I think was obviously that kind of brought me to him was Revs of Our Dogs wasn't their first movie that I, I saw of his. I want to say, like with everyone else, Pulp Fiction. I mean, as cliche as, cliche as it is to say, that was my first introduction to him. And I didn't go back and <clears throat> watch his previous film, but I was kind of interested in seeing what he had coming forward. And I just remember I was never old enough to see that. I always had to wait until uh, I could either get a f- older a friend to take me. I mean, I wasn't sneaking in, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, th- that's the one thing I remember the most. I was like, it took me a couple of years before I was finally able to, to go and, and be able to view him in theaters. I remember I, I got taken out of school early to watch Inglorious Bastards with a friend. And I thought that was pretty cool. I'm pretty sure the first one I actually saw is my favorite and that's Django Unchained. The way he's been able to tackle all these different like genre films, like Westerns and historical war films or the 70s Hollywood. There it is. Thank you. I was like, what era was it? But yeah, 70s Hollywood, like once upon a time, just like he's just he's always re- trying to do something different or like when he's doing his like Eastern style style films, like when he makes his kill bills or whatnot. He's well, able the, to like dip his toes in all these different genres and like make it somehow iconically that genre, but so iconically his own at the same time. And the thing that also he does very well with is he has just a lot of characters. Like, I mean, I don't know how else to describe it, but there are so many characters. And it's they- these well, these super well-written characters. Exactly. And this team of actors that he just like loves working with that know how to deliver all this amazing dialogue every time sam jackson is spitting quentin tarantino words it's some of the best things you'll ever hear in a movie it's in the part that people always enjoy knowing is when he's getting ready to make another movie it's it's like the top of people wanting to to work with but at the same time he's willing to bring back to people he already has one thing that i i mean in terms of what ifs i really would have liked to have seen what could have been with Leonardo DiCaprio playing in Inglourious Bastards, Hans Landa. I think that would have been. Uh, no, it was I his, mean, it was, not, I'm just, it was his first, sure, but not that character. That's who it was like his original idea was or whatever he wanted it. To I'd be. see him in the like David Brule ver, uh, role. Michael but Fett. not Hans Landa, dude, especially after the iconic performance that freaking Christoph Waltz delivers as that role. And like literally one of my that's maybe one of my favorite character performances, period. Well, I mean, knowing what Christoph Waltz did with it, obviously you don't want to overturn it. Right. You can't go back. But on that, that. But, but that was the first like time we almost had Leo in a Quintan. Sure. And it was always going to be uncertain. I'm glad we waited. <laughs> because him and as Colin can or Calvin Candy is Colin Candy. iconic, amazing. And I mean, the truly, scene where he crushes the, the glass and has it's like actually bleeding profusely, but he finishes the scene mm-hmm. and he's like, We're gonna go to the thing and have white cake. Amazing. Uh, he that's the best part with Tarantino is he also works with some actors and brings and, pull, and he pulls the best out of them. Yeah, absolutely. He, he was just able to kind of give Brad Pitt. Uh, a performance that allowed him to win the Oscar. And like, I mean, some obviously might say it was the career achievement that we repeat ourselves with on this. So sure. 
but he, I mean, well, also uh, Christoph Waltz. I mean, he, he really does. That, was, that wasn't, that was well-deserved. I would it's, not call that a career. Well, no, I'm just that, was, that was one of the times the Academy got it right. I mean, can't, can't go wrong with that one. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, I would say my favorite film of his is Pulp Fiction. And then I really, yeah, I'm sticking with Django. Once upon a time in Hollywood is, is every rewatch of that film. It just gets better. I don't, and, and then I do. I mean, yeah, then I would pick Django and Inglorious Bastards as my two. I think, I think se- that's like, that's like the second wave in ta- of Tarantino in my mind. The first wave being the Pulp Fictions and the Kill Bills and whatnot. But this was him tapping into like a whole new, uh, a whole new level of talent that we didn't even know he had is his, in his like Inglorious Bastards, his Hateful Eights, his Django and Chains, and his Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's the second half of his career. He's just at another level of talent. And I remember watching the Hateful Eight on 70 millimeter. And so Lucky. that's the one film of his that I haven't rewatched that much because my first viewing experience of it was just so fucking great. I keep I, I keep teasing and like trying to start the the extended editions that they have on Netflix, but I always it's just so long. It's such a task, and and it's going to be unfortunate though because Quentin Tarantino has come out saying that the next film he makes will be his last one, so it's going to yeah. be very interesting to see how long it's going to take. I mean, obviously, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out in 2019, so we could be getting close to. His next piece, I mean, maybe being announced this year, and then he can start working on next year for a 2024 release. Like, I wouldn't be surprised about that. But I'm, as I mean, I'm looking forward to to the next thing he, he obviously brings right, out. I need it. I want a cast and a premise, man. I need a no. cast and a plot. Well, I mean, we kind of already predict maybe 50 percent of the cast, you know. Well, obviously, but like he always throws some newbies in there. Do Do you remember when they were getting? He was getting ready to make the Hateful Eight. I don't know if you heard about this, but like. Michael Madsen leaked the script and he got so pissed off at him that that's why he wasn't in his next film. Um, oh, wow. And I and did it, not know that. It, I think it, I want to say it was between Michael Madsen and Tim Roth. Like they like something they both did or whatever. Um, they leaked the script and it really pissed off Quentin Tarantino because of that I twist, mean, yeah, man. twist ending and whatnot. Sure. In that film. And so I want to I want to say that that's why they weren't in his next next film. But yeah, it's always a good, that's a good tribute to, to know though. And yeah, Quentin Tarantino. I mean, I love how he's number three on both of our lists. So since you and I both had the same number threes, do you want to share your number two? This right here. No, you go ahead and go and do number two. So we stay in order. I don't have to go number two, but I can. <sighs> Thank you. Great. <laughs> a director that we've recently talked about. He had a film that came out last year that was pretty high on my list. Paul Thomas Anderson, number two. No, uh, no certain surprise there. He is a director that I um, admire a lot just because of the centric he has with the, like the craft in terms of not just the characters, but also the settings that he puts his characters in and then having to go on the journey with them and, and discovering a lot of things, I mean, about themselves, about everything that is not just within the story. Like there are also some central in real life, like meaning behinds everything. And, and I like that a lot about him and just his, the cinematography, the score, the actors he works with. Well, he didn't do either of those things, but that's cool. 
the way he's able to incorporate all of it within his, his story i just it there's there's a lot that i like about it and if we're looking at one, one i mean he's been he's able to bring some of the best out of adam sandler obviously the best out of daniel day lewis he's worked with him a lot <laughs> that one was in particular I'm sorry that uh, the i wouldn't call punch drunk love the best of adam sandler he is great i think that but that was like the first dramatic role we've seen adam taylor taken that time sure, but then he did uncut gems and fucking blew but that my was mind like a decade later anyways um he's able to it was a it was after jack and jill so i would call it redemption he needed it you know yeah so there yeah there you have it. i mean there you hear uh, paul thomas Anders is able to rejuvenate people's careers he's worked best with philip seymour hoffman the Master is probably a film not for everyone just because of like a lot of the Scientology behind it, but also just a lot with Joaquin's Phoenix character could really off put people. That one I enjoy. My favorite of his is There Will Be Blood. That film is just there's there's a lot within it and it's it's really great. My favorite would be Boogie Nights. Uh, I thought you were gonna say your favorite's one you haven't seen yet because I want you to. I will not. Yeah, I can promise you, Phantom Threads will not be my favorite. That's okay. I just need you to watch Phantom Thread because Phantom Thread is a Christmas movie, and you missed a great time to watch it. It's not a Christmas movie. There are decorations on one staircase in one scene because it's Christmas time. Just once. No, it's not. The um... anyways. No, I can. I can definitely agree. You've got me on that Paul Thomas Anderson train over the last couple of months or whatever I, I there's i think i only have like three or so i have to watch magnolia and then i gotta watch his first one heart eights and then the one that yeah i don't i don't, don't want to watch that movie yeah i would definitely agree he is a very uh he's a very t- uh, technically masterful director he knows exactly what he wants to do uh especially with his most recent work licorice pizza which is literally like a love letter to like an area of la the valley or whatnot and the way he doesn't take he doesn't necessarily take the 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 most obvious narrative route he's just telling the story through moments in time and it's not like oh we gotta go to licorice pizza to get the girl it's more just like the whole the time of it all the era of it all and being encompassed by the whole 70s feel of this story with these great characters and the way he can tell a story is like magnificent and he's maybe one of the best directors that when it comes to working with actors like you said he went from working with uh, philip seymour hoffman to working with his son and his son's performance cooper hoffman's performance in that movie is stellar he is an incredibly charismatic little kid in that movie. And so, I mean, his talent definitely shines, but. And there's one thing with. Some of his movies can be hella boring, dude. Just, I got to leave that there. Well, you notice that none of his films take place during current day. Sure. Yeah. No. Yeah. He, he well, like, nope. Uh, Punchstruck Love might be the closest. Right. Yeah. I was about to say. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the Masters is around the like 30s, isn't it? 30s or 40s? Yeah, after World War II. Something like that. Oh, the 50s then. Yeah. He and he also, I mean, he he does the screenplay for his work as well. And that's something similar with QT. Like, I mean, I like a director that also writes his work because then he's able to keep his vision and nothing can really come in the way between that. Like he's able to 100% have his say in what gets on there. 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that I look for in my favorite directors. I love a creative mind that is be that is able to construct the entirety of a story and then be able to direct and put that onto film the uh, visually as well. All three of the people in on my top three are writers, directors, and my number two, unless you have, do you have something, anything else you want to finalize about PTA before we move on? Watch Vanderbilt. I will eventually. <laughs> I'll wait. Uh, that'll be my Christmas present to you. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, my number two, another writer, director, one of my favorite and I think funniest directors that are out there right now. And I think he's going to be a force when it comes to not only directing big blockbuster movies, but also awards caliber movies coming off of his Oscar in 2019, Mr. Taika Waititi. Uh, I've brought him up multiple times on this show already, but I just, me, I found him with a buddy early on. We watched uh, Hunt for the Wilder People and what we do in the shadows. And I fell in love with his comedic stylings and like his character work and his writing and his tone. His, his scripts are always so wholesome and great coming of age tales. Uh, they feel so personal and they're always hilarious. He's so funny. Him personally, he's so funny. And the stuff he can write for these people and for these actors is it's so spot on and it's so great. And this dude just came from being like an indie New Zealand director making little Kiwi films for, in his spare time to, like I said, literally winning best screenplay for what I think is one of the most impressive satirical comedies of the modern era, which is with Jojo Rabbit. Well, he, he was also able to, you know, rejuvenate the Marvel franchise, like the Thor franchise, yeah. Marvel and the part that was almost left to dead. Like he took, he took what everyone already considered probably the weakest of the trail of the franchises. When you think about him. the Marvel cinematic universe and then transformed the whole character of Thor into something that the fans fell in love with and made literally my favorite MCU film, as I mentioned in my favorite MC in our MCU rankings uh, episode, but yeah, I, I love his tone and I love how he's able to inject himself into all the stories for like a little joke here or there, whatever. And I mean, him as Korg, he's inserted himself into the greater MCU and given himself a job for the ongoing future. It's great. He, yeah. I mean, there's, I do enjoy Jojo Rabbit and I, his next film also, I mean, whenever that is to be coming about, but his next film right i think they had to definitely do some reshoots because i'm i'm almost sure that one starred our boy army hammer don't uh, he's our boy (laughs) don't don't put that name out there (laughs) what you well you never like the social network bro but i i do both winkle vosses not great but i do like how he's getting himself with like actors are wanting to work with him and when you have that within a director that's always a good sign like you want them to have the collaborators that like stand by him and when he like and like i said he's able to dip his toe in the huge blockbuster blockbuster productions like your thors and your whatnot and then also do your more intimate and awards caliber stuff like your jojo rabbits or i I think it was called next goal wins the Mm -hmm. soccer movie which i mean dude i can't wait for that honestly If, if hopefully it gets made in a timely manner but i'm guessing he's working hard on thor right now one thing that i thought about recently is with how he's able to kind of envision Thor 
And do you think that Marvel could look at him directing like an Avengers team up? Like, do you think they would go to him for something like that? I think that's what he, they're doing for love and thunder because it's already him and the guardians. And then we're going to get James Foster back. And like, there's, there's rumors that we're having, uh, Oh God, what was yeah, his name? No, the, the beta rate bill. Remember? Oh, there's yeah. been rumors about seeing him or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So we could very well see if like a big team up style thing in this movie, but. Well, I just wonder, like, would you, I don't would, know. I don't it, know that he would want that much responsibility. He seems like the kind of guy to be like, nah, I'm good. I mean, he, hey, seeing, seeing behind he's, the photos with him and Rita Ora and Tessa dude, Thompson. I, yeah, he's got better things to do, right? <laughs> dude, and he's so, fu- dude, he's so funny as a person. He's one of the best interviews you can watch on late night. He's a guy that everyone wants to be around. I mean, certainly so. I mean, we, it, was a, it was great to see him during that Oscar run when he was going for George Rabbit and that kind of like, more people. I mean, I wanted, that was the same time with Thor Ragnarok, so he was really a central point. In the round, yeah, they were about two years, years apart, but yeah. yeah. He was able to take Jojo Rabbit in a story that is very controversial with what the nature is and turn it into a heart, you know, there's a lot of heart with it. Yeah, a truly how, heartwarming how story about friendship mm-hmm. and, like, and, and like familial love. Which I mean, I if you'd like to hear a lot more about Jojo Rap, you can check out Blaine Ward's uh our 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 friend Blaine's podcast, the Real Views podcast, where I go into a lengthy conversation about Jojo Rabbit with him. But anyways, yeah, I can cap this off with just saying, like again, Taika Waititi and and the rest and all of my picks basically in the top three for directors are are just they're amazing at writing human conversation when it comes to the dialogue in their screenplays. And that's what I love. And that's what I look for in a director. The best director, in my opinion, is also the best screenwriter. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm going to cut so much of that. Sure. Okay. But leave the, I'm going to leave the part where I'm saying right now that I'm going to cut that part. And then the people, they're going to have no fucking clue what I'm talking about. That would be hilarious. I'm doing it. Uh, but yeah, I guess before we get into our favorite directors of all time, I mean, not much of a surprise for anyone who, again, has listened to this podcast. But do you want to throw out some honorable mentions, your four, five, six, whatever uh, on your lists? Uh, Ridley Scott. I really like myself. Some Ridley Scott. I know there's some people out there that will watch his films and don't understand who and he some is. people out there who pretend to watch their films i i um michael mann i mean i can't i, I just recently you saw I, a couple years ago i watched howard through his filmography he, dude he, i just like his filmography especially with heat it's an instant classic every time you want to rewatch it um and then you can't go wrong with like the Christopher Nolans and the Martin Scorsese yeah. and the Steven Spielbergs. I mean, they're all within one tier. Steven Spielberg's up there in mine. I don't, but not literally none of the other ones you said are up in my top 10. Uh, I mean, I got to give love to Mel Brooks. The guy is like the definition of comedy for me. Uh, that being said, Terry Gilliam also his stuff with the Pony Python uh, crew and then his stuff after the fact, like fear and loathing in Las Vegas some of my favorite, most like surrealist films that I've watched. Uh, I love my, I love me some Wes Anderson talked about him a little bit with the French dispatch, but I love his style. I love that. He's so utterly him uh, and the Coen brothers, man, like they do good work. They, I, I big Lebowski is one of my top 10 of all time. And 
they do love what they can do with westerns and i love i love i even love them doing shakespeare stuff which surprised the hell out of me they do good work but i would say they're kind of on the tailspin of some stuff the last couple have not been i the ballad of busker scruggs was something else but yeah i mean i i didn't also i also didn't love uh hail caesar but well, you I'm can't deny that. i you can't deny the stuff like no no country for old men you can't deny the stuff like fargo or it raising arizona or, or the big lebowski like i said like those are like top tier films and they still are top tier films but uh and then i i i can't i got to say edgar wright he's up there number 4 i love edgar wright every he's he is not missed i even love at world's end so everything that man does uh Except for maybe the Sparks Brothers. Did you, we didn't love that. Did you hear recently that Simon Peck and him are trying to work together again? Like they're yeah, they're no, I did hear that. I I they didn't there was nothing about what they were doing, but I that I whatever they have in in mind, I'm all for. Well, I saw someone ask Simon Peck, like, would they ever consider making a sequel to one of the films within the Cornetto trilogy? And they can't quadrill they can't would, do a quadrilogy. It wouldn't yeah, work. it was like they, there's no yeah, he's like it would ruin the whole Cornetto trilogy of it all. Yeah, that would be that would actually be kind of great to see. To be honest, it's just like Simon Pegg getting back with Edgar Wright and something. Yeah, uh, three more names: John Landis, Richard Linklater, and Guillermo del Toro. Oh well, I mean, all three great. Just, yeah, well, let's just throw some out there. You know, the no, I, I mean, we could go on and on and on if you Matt want to drop Reeves, a couple more names. Ari Aster, Reeves, dude. Yeah, absolutely. But all great directors. Uh, Michael Bay. But what is the no? No, get out of here. Peter Berg. Yeah, I, I don't hate Patriots Day, but anyways, what would your number one uh, favorite director of all time be, Brent? If I had to guess, I think I would say Todd Phillips, Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> we almost had the teaser. So, my number one director all time, David Fincher. I can't really talk about it without breaking a bunch of rules so we're just gonna do that fight club guy did gone girl i mean he it's seven zodiac he's done like i love thrillers and he's created this atmospheric cool blue filter with his directing style like you know his touch when you're watching a film one one could say he's a master of tension Oh yeah, I mean it's it's unbelievable. I mean it, it's one of Girl those with a dragon tattoo. Mm-hmm. It, it, let's just finish it off. The game, <laughs> Alien. Alien Three, his yeah. best movie of all time. And and as you say, Alien Three, his experience on that film was so t- horrible that he almost just quit directing. He he came Dude, in. That would be a fucking. He shame. came into this business doing music videos. He was directing music videos, and he was approached for Alien Three. And he had such a horrible time on that because the studio kept interfering with with his work and like what he had in mind for that film. And so he was almost about to step away from it, but he came back. The the, the guy just started firing hit after hit after hit. I mean, I the amount of times that I watched Seven, I'm surprised I'm not on an FBI search list about you know keeping keeping tabs on that. And even within myself, like everyone interactively or whatever we'll say that social network is the best film but like i know it's his best film but it's not my favorite film i know it's his best directing and whatnot but like i see him being able to tell 
the story a little differently with a lot of his other films. I think with him, there's very few directors out there where you can probably find people that have different top threes. I mean, I might be one of the few that actually likes The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. It might have a lot to do with the Brad Pitt of it and Kate Blanchett. No, yeah, I was about to say, it's the Kate Blanchett of it, dude. Another tall blonde woman. <laughs> she can... Don't you lie. No one, no one's attracted to that old man baby Brad Pitt. The but yeah, I mean, my, my he is a part of my favorite films. I mean, certainly with me coming up and like sitting down and like kind of learning what thriller was. I remember watching Panic Room on a portable DVD player and still being able to like check my my surroundings because I felt like I was inside that the Panic Dude, Room. Panic Room is a classic. He he does he does a pretty good job at just directing and one thing that tension dude he he is able to like basically feel like as you're sitting there watching whatever movie you're watching it's almost like david fincher is standing next to you just like squeezing as hard as he can on your arm just being like you see what i'm doing am i making you uncomfortable right now that's the best part that's that's talent that's that is expert level talent because you have to have every single aspect of your film has to be like completely on point so that you can elicit that reaction from your audience well there's that scene and i don't know if you remember within with zodiac where jason hall is in the basement and you hear footsteps uh, upstairs and he was asking him is there anyone else in the house and like there's that quick moment where like when jake chill is running you're feel like you're running with them and like you're escaping the house with them. And there's not many people out there that can kind of can make you feel like that. And especially doing a film like the Zodiac, where we know the history behind it, you're still interested in how the, how it's going to end. Like, how is he going to choose to kind of close this off? And he was so invested in like that storytelling that he created the TV show Mindhunter, which is very good on Netflix. However, not many people watched it. So they only stopped with two seasons, but that's also just really good testament he also i mean if we really want to go into it he created house of cards which became so popular it allowed netflix to create so many other tv shows that brought more powerful minds and people into play that kind of helped create that platform i mean there's no denying that he had a role in that sure it created a boom when it comes to like long format scripted series on like netflix and streaming services and whatnot he he's i mean I unfortunately like I, that show ended on poor terms dude <laughs> there's a reason why i'm rewatching lost and not house of cards <laughs> i don't know, you know why I i'm mean, rewatching lost dude that's so much nah i like the with with david fincher though like his next film coming out it's it i know we didn't discuss it in the film uh our anticipated list of 2022 because i'm not certain it will come out this year but it's with Michael Fassbender. It's called The Killer. And Michael Fassbender plays like an assassin. And if that doesn't sound freaking awesome, I don't know what, what does. I'm kind of hoping it's like a John Wick-esque sort of thing. Like maybe a secret underworld assassin movie done I, by Fincher. I, I, I Almost in the vein of like a girl with a dragon tattoo, but more action-y. I, th- I, think, I think you're on the point there with like, Girl with Dragon Tattoo and like that action set point, but like it's going to be very, I think, isolated in its characters. That's the thing with with the directors that I picked. They've all done very few films, but they're very in terms of like laying out the character details. They're powerful about it. Um, mm-hmm. Gary Fincher doesn't write 
that's the one thing that's different between the other two guys is Dave Pinter doesn't write his own screenplays. Like true. He's always working with someone else and he lets his dad do it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But like he, I mean, he's, he's amazing. And, and it's very interesting that like the directors that I picked have very few films because I think they tell a lot within the few stuff that they have worked with. And that doesn't come around often. Uh, yeah. I mean, you've got like the Spielbergs out there who have directed like an ungodly amount of projects, but that's just because he's been around for so long. It's, it is a testament to like a lot, all of almost, I think all of our directors have less than 10 movies under their belt. Mm-hmm. Kevin Smith might uh, have the most and spoiler yeah. alert. That's my number one folks. Yeah. I mean, if anyone knows me, dude, they know I've only tried to meet Kevin Smith seven times. I actually did get to meet him once. So that think, was fantastic. The dude's my hero, dude. He's my number one. Gavin Fincher doesn't go out in the places that I go out into. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sorry that your favorite director doesn't like in actually show his love for the people that watch his movies like Kevin Smith does, dude. He takes his shit on the road and he has 17 podcasts. So he's always trying to do like some kind of live performance. I really have. I've gotten to see him live like seven times now. And I love it. just listening to the man talk. He is a storyteller, and that is why his scripts always feel so real and so detailed and so well-worked, and his characters are like the people you know in your real life, and he's, his scripts are hilarious. Sometimes, obviously, they're not Shakespeare. They're not the – maybe quite – I can admit it. Maybe they're not quite the caliber of your oscar films like your David Fincher movies or your Steven Spielberg movies, blah, 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 but – his films are so uniquely his and I can, I relate to like a lot of his characters, every single movie I watch, I can like see myself. Like I, I, the first movie I ever saw was clerks clerks is the first movie he made. I've worked plenty of jobs behind a register. I could relate with those characters with how they feel felt about those people coming up to them day after day and just being like incredibly stupid and, and the things that Randall and Dante say in that movie, I can totally relate with. And those are Kevin Smith's experiences that he's just putting in film form. And to do that is really a sign of an expert writer. And to do it so many times and so iconically his own, just Kevin Smith is will always be my number one. He is my hero. I mean, I think the first time I met you, you had all the you had all the pins on your jacket and right you, you made it well unknown that like you know who you are and like this is your I had, i'm like this is what you're getting into yeah. folks when you come and befriend me and i like have just pins about like all my favorite things just loudly advertising what i love and i i'm pretty sure i have like three or four kevin smith pins or whatever or some like reference pins to his movies but yeah no, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you got the, your, your, your picket here is obviously Kevin Smith knowing so though, that that's the thing with this list is we kind of did know each other because we've known each other for as long as we have. Right. We, this is more for the audience to learn the list than it is for us coming up and bringing like uh, surprising each other. But it's our picks really do. I feel like our picks are a very good. Uh, what's the word I'm, Oh God. You're very good. Represent of who we are, like our characters. Exactly, they're because very that's good. That's a little disturbing with me. Exactly. I mean, we. Walk that's. Out. I did say I've watched seven a lot of times. Yeah, but the thing with Kevin Smith though is we finally we can kind of talk about Jersey Girl though, you know, a film that we've been wanting to highlight for a long time. 
Yeah, Jersey, dude. I mean, we Kevin even Kevin Smith will be the first to admit like his career post Clerks Two, or I no 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 Clerks Two came a little bit later, but his career post Dogma, when he was like doing work and like making movies uh, for like doing other people's scripts like in Cop Out or whatnot, that was like not the high point of his career. Kevin Smith is good at one thing, and that's telling a Kevin Smith story, and that's why I could not be more excited for Clerks Three. And how they're going to round out that story in that trilogy. The fact that we're actually getting a Clerks trilogy blows my mind. Because it all started out as just like this indie darling film that like won dozens of awards or whatever at these festivals. And like cemented Kevin Smith in the zeitgeist that is the film world right now. And all these years later, he's making a third version of that movie. Which is just a reflection of his own life. And I can't wait to see it. I mean... I could go on and on and on, but I guarantee you I'll be talking more about Kevin Smith as this podcast keeps its uh, keeps on chugging along. So I guess we could just pretty much end it there unless you got anything else to say about directors or. No, I'm just, I'm actually, I mean, I'm, I enjoy watching his films. I mean, I, I know you recommended the, the Jay and Silent Bob reboot that came out a couple of years ago and I watched that one and with Clerks 3 coming out, Clerks was the first one. I want to say Dogma weirdly to say but dogma was the first one that i saw but he i went and saw clerks and i thought those were obviously my favorite of his outside of chasing amy we we did mention that one once before but i do like that one and he works with like once again like i think another thing that we can kind of share with in our filmmakers here is they work with the same people because these actors that come to the director they know what they're going to get with and they've created a friendship and a bond that really beats you know, wanting to come like for these people to come to work and knowing that this is what they're going to get and they're going to make it the best, not just out of what they can get, but also the best of what they can give to themselves and to the character. And there's the whole material and the art of what we right. have and why we love this. Like, you know, people love these directors and these filmmakers. And there's a reason why people like me and you come here and talk about it is because, you know, they they have this voice in this this area to create this chatter for us. I mean, dude, Kevin Smith literally jump-started Ben Affleck's career. Without Kevin Smith, there would be no connective through line that brought us like Goodwill Hunting either. So like he has had his his toes in the world of Hollywood for like longer than a lot of people understand or know. Yeah, and Kevin Smith was able to kind of help Ben Affleck and Matt Damon like like in terms of not just like direct, but like direct him into like the right person that can help. They, he exactly we don't have to mention who, but we he put him in touch with the right people that ended up financing the the film and the at one point even he was going to direct it while hunting but he turned it down because kevin smith knows that he's good at one thing and that's making a kevin smith movie like i already said but that's probably going to wrap up that whole conversation this is another quick episode for you guys no awards news really either but we'd like to end the podcast by letting you know we did do a little bit of a director's draft with three of our friends we ended up picking just 20 directors each free for all style, no categories or whatever. So a hundred total. And we're going to end up putting that up on our Instagram. So if you could go onto the Instagram comment and put who you think, maybe rank the lists, we'll keep them anonymous. So you don't know who's is who's, but honestly, it might be pretty obvious for most of you. <laughs> yeah. We're just, we're just kind of looking to have some fun here. We'll, we'll put some, we got to get a little bit more competitive when we're talking. Cause we're the rivals. We got to compete in some fashion. Well, I mean, if we share all the drafts we did, I think they were, they would see the rival. Well, yeah, we'll, 
we're not talking about those drafts. We're talking about this one. But again, hey, folks, I didn't try on this draft. So just remember that. Right. You didn't write down 75 directors for no reason. No. I had, yeah, I didn't do anything of that nature. But that's, <laughs> but that's going to be it for the rest of the podcast. Uh, Brent, last thing, would you like to leave them with a recommendation? Yeah, uh, I'm going to recommend a little, not a movie, but I'm going to recommend them a TV show. Something that we're not going to talk about, but I think lost. No, Ozark came out. I believe it was two weekends ago, but I finally finished it, and that is just some very good stuff. And I know people that visit the Ozark, and it's kind of cool to kind of see that um, they don't do the same stuff as far as far as I know. But Jason Bateman is really good in that show, and that show itself is is really good, and I like to see where it's going. And then I get, I think I'm going to do a series of films and that would be the jackass movies I spent the entire day off thursday watching all five i freaking love those movies i don't get why they do the two the, the point fives like it's just it's because they literally say it in the movies they're like hey we filmed two movies worth of footage here's the rest of the stuff it's, it's i don't know i don't know i mean they didn't get like, the we're actual gonna, movies, we're gonna watch i love jackass having 4. it we're gonna watch jackass four and it's gonna can't be like, wait oh here's Here's 4.5 in July. Maybe. But again, it's not like they went to uh, theaters, did they? I'm pretty sure they were direct to DVD. No, they were. Yeah. Yeah. So still, I, I do the more the merrier. I can't wait. We'll talk about Jackass forever next week. So, yeah, I mean, hey, starting this week, we'll start. We'll be having more content coming up every single Every single week, we got movies coming out, which... Yeah, we, finally, we got movies coming yeah. out again, so we'll have more to talk about. Yeah, but, can't wait for the Marry Me conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> love me some Owen Wilson. And I love me some J-Lo. And that's going to be it for us this week. We will return next week. Have a good one.